Morning, church family. Greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God for this opportunity to hear His ancient words. Ancient words that are changing us and making us more like Christ. As we draw near to His word, let me remind you that we are in the Gospel according to Mark. And this morning, we're looking at verse 20 up until verse 26. Verse 20 up until verse 25, actually. Um, yeah, verse 20 until, up until 20, verse 25. <clears throat> you will um, notice that the story that we picked up in verse, um, in chapter 11, verse 1 to 11, was Jesus entering Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, um, as he rode humbly, uh, riding a, a, a colt. And then again, he inspects the temple, and the next day he comes back, and um, on, actually on that day, he inspects the temple, and then on that day, he curses a fig tree. Then he comes back, to the temple after inspecting it the next day and drives out those who were turning the house of the Lord into a den of robbers. Then all of a sudden we are back to the story of the fig tree and then there's a lesson that follows after that. Um, Mark chapter 11 verse 20 to verse 26, verse 25. Let us read. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord and God, we thank you for your word. It is indeed our prayer that you will transform us with it, that you will work in our hearts a faith that honors and brings glory to your name. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. This morning we're looking at the power of genuine faith. The power of genuine faith, of uh, genuine is a word that means real, right? Something that is real, that is not fake. The power of genuine faith. Now, genuine biblical faith is a miracle, if you think about it. Faith in God is something we do not possess naturally. Nobody possesses faith in God naturally. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us that this faith is a gift of God. God enables us to believe in Him for salvation. Then He gives every believer some measure of faith according to Romans chapter 12 verse 3. 
Well, that means that God empowers His children to believe Him, to serve Him, to glorify Him through the power of the faith in Him that He gives to us. This outworking of faith in God's people has allowed them to see demonstration of God's power that boogle the mind, that, 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 that makes the mind, uh, uh, you know, blows the mind. It has allowed them to receive answers to prayers for things that appeared impossible. Let me give you some uh, a couple of examples as we uh, look at uh, the, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 10, verse 12 to 14, remember? Joshua commanded the sun to stand still so that Israel could defeat the Amorites. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1 to 6, King Hezekiah was told that he would die. He prayed to the Lord and God added 15 years to his life. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 to 14, Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, who was the son of promise, who obeyed by faith, and God spared Isaac, providing a ram in his place. Joshua 14, verse 6 to 16, 85-year-old Caleb believed God for the power to defeat a mountain infested with giants. God gave him that mountain. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 to 54, a teenage boy named David believed God for the power to defeat a giant named Goliath. God gave him the victory. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 to 30, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Believed God to keep them from the power of a pagan king and a fiery furnace. God met them in the furnace and protected them there. Many, many more examples could be given. But these are enough to teach about the power of biblical faith in God. The the, the passage before us today magnifies the, the, the power of genuine biblical faith. On Monday morning of the Lord's Passion Week, as Jesus and his disciples walked toward Jerusalem, Jesus cursed the fig tree, if you remember, in verse 12 to verse 14. When they passed it the next day, the fig tree was dried up. Jesus uses this experience to teach his disciples a lesson about the power of genuine biblical faith. When we exercise biblical faith in God and His promises, we can expect, we can expect amazing results. The, the key to that statement is the phrase, genuine biblical faith. I hope it's clear. Genuine biblical faith. A lot of people think that faith is a blank check. That they believe they can ask for anything they desire and that God is obligated to do all that they ask Him to do. That is not exactly what the Bible teaches. This passage has much to say about the power of genuine biblical faith. That, 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 that's what I want to preach to you about today. I want to show you from these verses, first, the object of, of, of biblical faith. Second, the opportunities of biblical faith. And thirdly, the obstacles of biblical faith, object, opportunities, obstacles. Let's examine these truths together, shall we? 
verse 22, the object of biblical faith. The object of biblical faith. When, when the disciples are amazed at the withered fig tree, Jesus simply says to them, as he takes this, this, this lesson, he says, have faith in God. The emphasis of the command is that God's people should have a deep, settled, consistent, ongoing confidence in who God is. Does that make sense? It is not the fact that you are able to master faith in yourself and your abilities, but you have faith, a settled, consistent faith in who God is and in who God says He is. In what God has said, in what God will do. It speaks of a constant communion of prayer with God, dependence upon God, and obedience to God. When Jesus says, have faith in God, he's encouraging faith in several aspects of God's character. First of all, he's encouraging faith in God's person. If you are saved, God is your father. As your father, he cares about every need in your life. We are called to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. First uh, Peter chapter 5 verse 7. As your father, he invites you to bring your needs and your burdens and concerns to him. Remember Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 that tells us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, we should make our request known to him. And what does it say? It says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in Jesus Christ. As your father, he desires to open the resources of his kingdom and give them to you. We are not dealing with an aloof, disconnected deity without compassion and care for his people. Our God loves his children. And he wants them to come to him on the basis of simple, childlike faith. Like a child trusts its parents for every need, the child of God can trust the heavenly father. We believe in God's person, in who God is. He's our Father, isn't He? He's a good, good Father. That is who He is. Secondly, we believe in God's promises. In God's promises. When it comes to the matter of faith and approaching God in prayer, the people of God have, have, have some very precious promises from God. He invites us to pray to him, as we, we, we noted in, 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 in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, God promises to hear us when we pray. Jeremiah 33 verse 3. God promises to answer our prayers when we come to him, when we knock, when we seek, we will find. Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 to 11. When it comes to the promises of God, we have the Lord's guarantee that he will keep Every single one of them. None of God's promises ever falls uh, away. When God promises, He will fulfill. We are given uh, uh, that, um, that, uh, that that Abraham, uh, the example of Abraham, that 
this is what God says. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Do you see that? No unbelief made him waver. Chapter, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced. <laughs> fully convinced that God was able to do what he said he would do. Fully convinced. God will not back away from a single promise he has made to his people. By the way, you cannot have faith um, that God will do something for which there is no biblical promise. One of the things that... um, There's there's a lot of people that have, have experienced hurt because of false teaching that has made promises to them. As if it's God who made those promises. And when those promises do not come to fruition, they leave the church. They leave what they call the faith. But in actual fact, they believed God for promises that God did not make. One of the things that um, when I was 17 years old that made me leave church completely, only to come back, uh, at the age of 19, when God convicted me and I came to faith truly, was um, when my sister gave birth and to a beautiful, beautiful um, child. And um, after a few months, she got sick. And I prayed, because that's what we were doing at home. That's what we were taught to do. That was the only thing that I could do. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And the child died. And I looked at God, and I said, do you even exist? You see, brothers and sisters, we think that adversity is not the lot of Christians. We think that Christians should not face adversity. And this is not a biblical idea. In fact, it is an idea that has been preached a lot. And, and because it has been preached a lot on our pulpit when they say, come to Christ and everything will go well for you. We come to Christ and we think that everything will go well for us, but adversity comes and trial comes and we back away and we said, they promised me a bed of roses. I'm not seeing roses, I'm seeing thorns alone. Brothers and sisters, we will go through thorns. We will go through difficulty. We will go through pain as Christians. It it, it does not need to make our faith waver. It should strengthen our faith. It it should be something that that purifies our faith. That 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 makes our faith stronger. That causes us to cling uh, more to God. Paul, as he writes to the young church in Thessalonica, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, he reminds them because they were going through difficulty. Actually, in chapter 3, they were going through different things that were shaking 
their faith. And he says to them in chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Why was Paul doing that? Verse 3 tells us why he was doing that. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions. Because they were going through afflictions. It's a small church you can imagine. They just recently came to Christ a few months. And, 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 and they are working with Christ. All of a sudden there are these trials and afflictions around them. And Paul sends Timothy to strengthen them and exhort them in their faith. That they not be moved by these afflictions. Because afflictions have a tendency to do that brethren. And he continues to say, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. In this world, brothers and sisters, we will experience afflictions. This world, I remind you, brethren, is not home. We are passers-by. It is not home. And as it's not home, we are going to feel like foreigners in this land. There are many times we are going to feel like foreigners in this land. We should not have faith in promises that God did not make. But when God says something in the word of God, we can have absolute faith that he will do what we ask. When we pray outside of the word of God, we cannot pray in absolute faith because we do not know what God's will is in that matter. Faith is always based on a clear word from the Lord. Faith is always based on a clear word from the Lord. It is not based on our feelings. It is not based on our gut feeling. The 17 of chapter, of chapter 10 in Romans tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You, you cannot have a faith, brethren, a faith that is not based on the words of Christ, on the words that are in the Bible. Faith must be based on the word of God. So while it is right to pray about every matter in your life, it is wrong to expect God to do everything you want him to do. God honors faith. But genuine biblical faith is always based on the word of God. Always. So our faith is expressed in God's person, in God's uh, um, promises, and in God's power. In God's power. And it's one thing to make a promise. It's another thing to have the power to keep that promise. All of us know what a broken promise is. We make promises and we find out that we are incapable of keeping that promise. Or we have been, someone has made a promise to us and they were incapable of making that promise and sometimes to our hurt. The children of God can have absolute confidence in God's power to do everything he has promised to do. He has the power to do anything we ask him to do. He has the ability to do anything he pleases to do. 
We serve an awesome God who possesses all power in heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to Him. All of it. What I'm trying to say is that our Heavenly Father can do anything. There's nothing that is outside His ability. We believe in God's power. We believe Again, in God's purposes, God's purposes. Well, when it comes to faith in God, we must always remember that He has an eternal plan that He's working to accomplish. He has a purpose. And everything in the universe, even our requests, are subject to His will. We will do nothing that is outside the bounds of His eternal purpose. We will do nothing that is not part of his plan. He will do nothing. He will do nothing. He will will not do everything we ask just because we ask it. He will do those things that he wills to do and he will accomplish all things that he has willed to do. Isn't that what our Lord teaches us, brothers and sisters? In the Lord's prayer, I mean, we must take it serious, shouldn't we? When he teaches us to pray and he gives us the pattern to, to pray, the, 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 the section there when he says we should pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Christian's desire must be first and foremost and above all the will of God. Haven't you heard, brothers and sisters, it is very strange when, when people who prop themselves up as preachers of the word say to yourself, when you pray, don't say, God willing. If God wills. Who are you to say that? We should pray for the will of God. If God wills. There are some brothers and sisters, and, and sometimes it might sound like we, we don't have faith when we say this. There are some who are going to be sick in this world, and, 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 and we will pray for them, and, and, and they will die. And it doesn't mean that God was not powerful. Just think about in the Bible, Peter and James, Right? Peter and James, Peter uh, in Acts, in, 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 in this is a story that is very surprising to me. In Acts chapter 12, the, uh, James and Peter are arrested, are imprisoned by Herod. They, the church prays and James is beheaded. The church prays and Peter is miraculously released from prison. The question is, as you read that passage, which, un- which question, which, which, which prayer did God answer? Which prayer did God answer? Was God more loving to, to, to Peter, uh, uh, releasing him miraculously, and not loving to another saint, James? Which prayer did God answer? Well, the, the answer to that question is both. He answered both. And he answered them in his wisdom and in his care and in his love. Remember the words of, of Jesus Christ in, in, in John chapter 17 as he prays the high priestly prayer. I desire that they may be with me. How are you going to be with him, brothers and sisters? He answered the prayer 
of, of, of uh, when they were praying for James by bringing him to himself. He answered the prayer of Peter by releasing him and continuing the gospel work through him. Both prayers were answered. I mean, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's important that we get it in our minds, brothers and sisters. When we pray for a sick person, we must expect three things to happen. We must expect God to answer that prayer either in three of those ways. First, God, we, we, we pray that God will answer the prayer miraculously, that the person will be healed miraculously, that they will stand up and, and walk and, 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 and health will be restored to their bodies. Miraculously. We believe in miracles, don't we, brothers and sisters? We believe God is a miracle working God. And secondly, we believe that God will answer that prayer. If He doesn't answer it miraculously, He will answer it providentially. Providentially, it means that God uses medical practitioners. He uses the medic- medicine and herbs that we have that are available to us that we can use and restore health to our bodies. He uses medical practitioners. The church started the hospital. The hospital is the ministry of the church. Well, we don't see that now, but the, the hospital was the ministry of the church. Initially, historically. Thirdly, he answers prayer eschatologically. They will die and be with the Father where there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more weeping, and he wipes every tear from their eyes. Although our hearts grieve, but they are with the Father. So we see first the object of biblical faith. Secondly, verse 23 and verse um, 24. The opportunities of biblical faith. The opportunities of biblical faith. Verse 23 and verse 24. Let us look at those verses, shall we? Verse 23 and verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What we see, we see opportunities of biblical faith here. First of all, what we see, that biblical faith, biblical genuine faith, allows us to believe the impossible. From where Jesus and his men were standing, they would have been able to see the Mount of Olives and the Dead Sea. Jesus was giving them a vivid, a very vivid illustration here. He was using a familiar Jewish proverb to teach them a deeply spiritual truth. The Jews commonly spoke of moving a mountain to refer to something that was absolutely impossible or to something that would be a long task. There are so many situations in life that appear hopeless. There are people that seem lost, that they will never, and it seems that they will never be saved. There are needs so great that it, it appears they will never be met. 
there are problems so big it appears they will never be overcome. Faith in God and in the promises found in his word allows us to believe that God is able to do the impossible. That the impossible situations in our lives belong to him. You know, brothers and sisters, why there are things that are impossible for us? It is so that we show our reliance on God. I mean, if, 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 if everything that you wanted to do in this life was just possible, you just pressed the button and it happened, you wouldn't even have to rely on anyone, let alone God. But when we face difficulty in life, we are led to trust and rely upon God. There's a passage that people um, say, I'm going to ask another question. Can God give you something you are not able to handle? Yes. Here's how a lot of people would, would answer that question. They think about First Corinthians, where the Bible tells us that no temptation has overtaken us, such as is uncommon to man. God will not give you... Um, let me actually go to it. Um, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, the question still stands. Can God give you something that you are unable to handle? The answer is yes. God does give us things that we are unable to handle. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, um, what verse is that? Uh, uh, verse 12 and 13 has nothing to do with God giving us hard things to handle. It has everything to do with temptation to sin. That God in the midst of sin has provided a way of escape. And that sin will not defeat you because you are no longer under the rulership of sin. Now, God will give you something that is difficult for you to handle so that under the weight of the pressure of that thing, you can cry out to God. Do you see how different that is? God will give us things that are impossible. God will bring situations that are impossible so that we can look to Him in faith. I believe God for salvation of the lost soul because of what he said in his word. He has spoken and he will do it. Right? He desires all men to be saved. And I can have faith that God will meet that need which seems impossible. I cannot save anyone. I have no ability to save anyone. But because of his promise, I can believe him. I can have faith that I am saved. I can look to Him and trust in Him and know that He has truly saved me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For everyone who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can have faith that I am secure in Jesus. Whenever I go through difficulty, 
Whenever I go through uh, 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 things that are too hard for me to handle, I can remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I can have faith that I have a place uh, in heaven. Jesus uh, promised me and he promised you uh, as he promised the disciples in John chapter 14 that he goes and prepares a place and, and, and because he has prepared a place our hearts should not be troubled we should believe in God we should believe in Jesus there are many rooms in the house of God He is not ashamed to be called our God. Hebrews 11. Because he has prepared a place for us. I can have faith that he will never leave me alone. As he promised in, in Hebrews 13 verse 5. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I can have faith in the fact that he is with me. The list goes on and on. Faith in God and His promises allows us to believe Him for those things that appear impossible to us. Not only that, but it allows us to receive the, the impossible. Jesus said that if you could believe in Him, we could have what we ask for. Faith has a remarkable ability to enable us to hold in our hands things that have yet to be seen. What does Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 tell us? Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of what faith is, right? He, as, as it gives us that list of, 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 of heroes of faith, people who walked by faith in God. It tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That the word assurance is the word substance, which means foundation or that which stands under something. Faith is the guarantee, the assurance that we will have the things God has promised us. There's the word evidence or conviction. It is a word that we can, um, we can use the, the modern English vernacular, the smoking gun. It is the evidence. It is there. Faith allows us to hold in our hearts things that have yet to appear. The faith described in that amazing verse is the absolute God-given present confidence in the future reality. It is a conviction that we have believed by faith. What we have believed by faith is already ours, even though we cannot yet see it. That this kind of faith is not based on what the eye can see, but it is based on what God has promised. The faith mentioned here gives substance to the promises of God for our future. We hope for Christ's return, Titus chapter 2 verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. We hope for the resurrection of the dead, First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We hope 
for our future glorification. First John chapter 3 verse 3 uh, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We hope that we will reign with Jesus. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. You see, faith in God and his word makes these future promises present realities. Heaven is real to me today. Resurrection is real to me today. My future glorification and eternal change are real to me today. These things are real, not because I have seen or experienced any of them, but because God has promised them to me and he has given me the faith to believe them. All things I mentioned and many more besides seem impossible to our minds, yet they are real because God has given them to us by faith. Thank God for the power of genuine biblical faith. Some people here are holding the unseen things of tomorrow in your hands today through the awesome power of faith. God has confirmed his promises in your heart and you are merely waiting for him to fulfill them all in his time. Others don't believe it, but God has assured you through faith. Trust him, brethren. Hold on to his promise and in his time he will bring it to pass. Hold on to him and don't let go. We see lastly, Verse 23 to 25, you will notice that in your, in, in, if you are holding a King James Bible, it says, verse 26, that one, uh, uh, we will deal with when we come to chapter 16 as to, 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 to why it's just verse 25 there. The obstacles of biblical faith. While Jesus points out the great object of faith and reminds us of the opportunities of faith, he also mentions some obstacles of faith. While faith in God is powerful and allows us to experience the incredible and receive the impossible, that faith can be hindered. There are many other obstacles to prayer in the Bible that, that are not mentioned. But I want to focus on the three that are, on the two that are mentioned here. Verse 23 says unbelief. Um, if you notice in verse 23, it says, We shall not doubt. He shall not doubt in, in his heart. Doubt is deadly uh, to effective prayer. The word doubt means to be divided in one's thinking, to hesitate, to draw back. When we pray from a heart of doubt, we are drawing back from the word of God. We are saying, I know what God said, but I do not believe I do not believe it in this matter. Doubt calls into question the character and ability of God. Doubt says, God may have promised it, but I don't believe he can or he will do it. The prayer of a doubter will not be answered. The prayer of a doubter will not be answered. Remember, this is what James says, that we should pray for wisdom But he says, when we pray, let him ask in faith, verse 6 of chapter 1 in James, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person may not suppose that he will receive anything 
from the Lord. You see, when you doubt and are not sure of the promises of the Lord, you can be sure of this one thing, that your prayer will not be answered. Verse 23 and 24, we see selfishness. Selfishness. It talks about the things that you desire. The word desire means to ask, to, to beg, to call for, to request. It sounds like a blank check, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and, and people even use the, a, a psalm and they say, God will give you all the desires of your heart. And it is true. As long as your desires are aligned with His will. If you desire, uh, 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 what do you call? You desire a Ferrari. <laughs> I don't know cars. <laughs> but... <laughs> You desire a Ferrari and you expect that it be met now. You're going to be disappointed. Your desire must be aligned to God's will. Your your desire must not come out of a place of selfishness. I would just remind you that this verse says no such thing. There is not a single verse in the Bible that contradicts any other verse. That the Bible is very clear that answers to prayer come when we pray according to the will of God. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to think in prayer we are bargaining with God. Or we are negotiating with God. We we are on the negotiating table. Right? Just as Wazi likes negotiating with me. When I say, don't do this. And we fight about it and fight about it until he doesn't want to do it. He wants to do something else. So that he can get his, get his way. That there is no bargaining table when we come to God. There is no negotiation when we draw near to God. It is us relying completely on God. For John chapter 5 verse 14 to 15 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, in my name I will do it. Prayer must always be based on what he wants and not what we want. John 14 verse 13 to 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, again, I will do it. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are not using a magical formula that guarantees that God has to do what we ask Him to do. In Jesus' name is not the Christian equivalent of abracadabra. We are not just to close our prayers by saying in Jesus' name and then believe that God has to do what we will we tell him to do. In Jesus' name is also a reminder to us that we pray not because we deserve to pray. We pray because Christ has done something in our hearts and we have a relationship with God because of this Jesus. To use Jesus' name is to pray for the things Jesus would pray for. It is to pray for his purposes and his will to be fulfilled. And not our own selfish reasons. It is to petition, to ask God on the basis of Christ's righteousness and not our own. It is to pray for his glory alone. It is like power of attorney. When you are given power of attorney, 
over someone's affair, you are given the right to make decisions on their behalf. It does not mean that you can do anything you want with their resources. It means that you act in their best interest, always remembering that their name and reputation are at stake. When we pray selfish prayers that are based solely on what we want in a situation and not on his will, we can expect those prayers to be unanswered. James reminds us in James chapter 4 verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it. You want to spend it on your passions. Joshua and Caleb and all the others who received big answers to their prayers of faith did so because they were asking for things that God already promised them in the word. Joshua did not ask for the, I mean, uh, they did not ask for, 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 for Canaan out of the blue. God had already promised it. When the Israelites prayed out to God, it was because God had already promised that he would deliver them. When Elijah prayed that it would not rain, it's because in the Deuteronomy, God has said that if you sin and do not honor me, it would not rain. When, 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 when Elijah prayed that it would rain again after three years, it is because God promised that if my people would humble themselves, call out to me and pray, it was because they were relying on the word of God. They were not just coming up with things in their minds. It was based, look at every prayer in the word. Look at every prayer in the Bible. It is based completely on the word of God. I don't like the term prayer warrior, but I think uh, it's, it's an important term that we, we can use. Uh, I'm repenting from not liking it, actually. Uh, 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 God calls us to be prayer warriors, right? He calls us to be prayerful. He calls us to be prayerful people, but we are prayerful led by His Word. We, we cannot be prayerful outside His Word, outside what His Word says. It doesn't matter the kind of faith we muster up. If God has not promised it, He will not do it. And God is not wrong. There are so many people that have left the church when you ask them. They are so disappointed with God, but they are not actually disappointed with God. They are disappointed with their men of God. Men of gold, if you ask me. Biblical faith is a powerful weapon. Mountains yield to its power. Sin, Satan, and sorrow all must bow before its authority. Faith is among the greatest gifts to his children. You see, brothers and sisters, Satan is not afraid of you reading books about prayer. He's afraid of you praying. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, you've given us this resource, this means of grace that we take for granted oftentimes. We pray that you help us, O Lord, to commit ourselves to you in prayer, to honor you with our lives, with our hearts, to be marked by true biblical faith. In the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.